This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. This week, Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman joins me for a couple of conversations. First, we want to tell you about a significant new benefit coming to federal employee health benefit plans in 2024, infertility treatment benefits. But the way the Office of Personnel Management has defined infertility doesn't go far enough for some Democrats in Congress. Andrew, let's start with OPM's definition of infertility. I guess people kind of know what it is, but it gets technical, doesn't it? It does get a little bit technical, Tom, in the FEHB program guidance, and it depends on both the age and the marital status of the F- of the FEHB enrollee. So for women uh, ages 35 and younger, it's defined as being unable to conceive for one year. For women ages 30, uh, over 35, the time frame is shortened to just six months. And then for single women looking to uh, conceive, it's defined, infertility is defined as the inability to conceive after six cycles of either artificial insemination or intrauterine insemination. So some of those IVF procedures and the definitions and how OPM defines these things are important because it determines when enrollees in FEHB do become eligible for infertility related drugs and treatments and to be able to get coverage in their FEHB plans for those types of treatments. And are these definitions pretty much the industry standards? So there has been a move in the private sector to kind of broaden the definition of infertility. And that's part of the reason that lawmakers are pushing OPM to kind of uh, expand or redefine infertility in FEHB program guidance. It's something that uh, we've seen states uh, do a little bit more in recent years. And do these definitions, I guess some people are saying certain groups are left out. I mean, the first question is, what about infertile men? That might be the cause of a couple, you know, not being able to conceive. Right. That is a good point. The definition does specifically point to women. So that wasn't actually a thing that was referenced specifically in the letter from lawmakers, but something that OPM uh, may consider going forward if they do choose to redefine infertility. But the groups that are, are excluded, as the lawmakers pointed to, are single individuals as well as LGBTQ plus individuals. Uh, so specifically looking at you know, how do you define infertility for single women? Uh, there's a six cycle requirement to reach the definition of infertility. So that woman has to go through six cycles of uh, infertility related treatment before they be- can be considered infertile and get that coverage in FEHB. So that doesn't take into account, for example, if there's an infertility diagnosis uh, when a patient is evaluated earlier in the process. So the lawmakers are saying that that idea of having six having to go through the six cycles is kind of arbitrary and of course you uh requires a lot of out of pocket costs before you can get coverage in FEHB. Yeah, well, I guess some of them weren't around 30 35 years ago when it was all out of pocket for anybody and it was expensive back then. Trust me, I know about this. All right, so that is yet I guess to be sorted out or litigated out or something. But in the meantime, there are new requirements for carriers starting in 2024 calendar 2024, so I guess you could make the upcoming open season, you know, that choice could be your basis. What are the new requirements for carriers? So the new requirements, OPM is saying that all FEHB carriers have to expand their coverage of fertility-related health care 
This includes things related to assisted reproduction. So at a minimum, all FEHB carriers will be required to cover two different forms of artificial insemination, as well as the drugs associated with those procedures, and then also cover three cycles of just the drugs related to in vitro fertilization annually. And interestingly, there's a cost differential here. Kevin Moss, who's editor of Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees, explains. Infertility benefits has been one of the things that a lot of FEHB plans haven't provided much for uh, both this year and in in previous years. There are 20 states that mandate um, some form of fertility coverage. Outside of those plans offered in those states, uh, fertility uh, benefits were very rare uh, to be found in FEHB plans. And this is incredibly expensive stuff for families, uh, you know, that need fertility services. And that was Kevin Moss, editor of Consumers Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees. And also notably here, Tom, the the costs are quite expensive, as you alluded to. OPM specifically uh, said that the cost of one IVF cycle can range anywhere from fifteen dollars to $30,000. And the drugs, which are the required part that FEHB carriers are going to have to cover, the fertility drugs, those only cost for about a third of the total cost. So about two-thirds will still be out of pocket for FEHB enrollees looking to get that kind of coverage. Yeah, in some ways, it's almost in terms of just the percentage of total cost that it covers, it's almost like dental coverage in that sense. It's not the full treatment and you only pay a small copay, you've still got an investment out of pocket that's pretty substantial for this type of treatment. Exactly. There is very substantial out of pocket costs, um, as you just said. And that is something that, you know, OPM has encouraged carriers to offer more than just those set requirements. Uh, but again, the the requirements are the requirements. And, you know, some are saying that it maybe doesn't go far enough. Um, the lawmakers, for example, this the same group of lawmakers that wrote the letter to OPM, um, more, more recently, they've been pushing OPM for at least the past couple of years to try to um, expand coverage of infertility-related treatments. Yes, and I guess probably nobody knows what the effect of this additional coverage would have on premiums. I mean, I guess it depends on the particular demographic pool of of given carriers' customers. I mean, if everybody, I mean, just to make an absurd example, if everybody in a carrier's population was over 50, they'd probably never pay out anything for infertility treatments. If everybody is under 35, then there could be a substantial liability. I mean, just to put it in extreme terms, but it could have an effect on on the costs and therefore the premiums. Yeah, absolutely. It could have uh, somewhat of a cost. And, you know, I think notably it will depend on the plan. You know, maybe some will um, offer just the requirements, some will offer more, and that might affect the cost as well here. And getting back to Kevin Moss, who's one of our resident experts on all things healthcare plan related, he thinks the carriers could go a step further or the requirements could go a step further also? Right. So this was, I alluded to back when I was describing the costs for uh, IVF procedures and the drugs accounting for only one third of the total cost there. So Moss said that these new requirements do leave gaps in coverage for some ART procedures. And he explained what exactly is missing here. So this is a big step in the right direction. But keep in mind that you know, families that need fertility coverage are still going to have a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. Things that are missing 
um, from from these uh, requirements from OPM are you know several assisted reproductive technology procedures such as in vitro fertilization um, at being the big one. Also, the cost of donor sperm, donor eggs, the donor embryo, or any cryopreservation. These are all costs associated with fertility services that you know families will still have to pay entirely out of pocket for. And that's Kevin Moss, editor of Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees. And, you know, this is kind of a wait and see um, mode that Kevin kind of described here. But he recommended using, for example, a flexible spending account to help offset some of those larger expenses for enrollees who are looking to get some of these quite expensive procedures done. Uh, But he is saying that he hopes in the meantime, some of these plans will provide additional fertility benefits starting in 2024, as OPM has encouraged but not required. So again, it's just going to be a wait and see game here to see, you know, what will those um, options be for federal employees looking to get that coverage? I guess there are some medical conditions where maybe the drugs are inexpensive and the procedures are expensive, or the drugs are expensive and the procedures are inexpensive. In the case of infertility, the drugs are expensive and the procedures are expensive. So it's, it's a high cost area of medicine. It is quite expensive. You know, as another example, I mentioned the between fifteen dollars and $30,000 for an IVF procedure. Uh, you also have an intrauterine insemination costs. That's those cycles that uh, those six cycles that I mentioned that someone would have to go through to be considered infertile. Those per cycle can cost between $500 and $4,000, and that doesn't include the cost of the donor's sperm. So, again, there's some really significant costs here uh, to federal employees. And, again, it's just going to be a wait and see for, you know, how much coverage there will be from carriers starting in 2024. Right. And, you know, there's also no guarantees for any of these outlays. You could go through this six times at 10000 a pop and have nothing to show for it. You know, most medicine, you think of the subtraction of a condition. In this case, you're thinking of the addition of a life. And either way, no guarantees. Right. There, There isn't a guarantee here. I think the, the key, though, really is, you know, that definition, that hitting that six-cycle limit, at least for single FEHB participants, um, will determine whether those enrollees can start getting coverage, start getting that cost covered, or at least part of the cost covered of those thousands of dollars that will uh, ultimately be, a com- I guess, a combination of out-of-pocket and and covered under the plan. Um, in the meantime, you know, these, these new coverages will take effect in 2024, but those members of Congress, as we talked about at the top, they're urging OPM to uh, work to immediately update this definition of infertility ahead of those changes taking effect so that they can there can be a little bit more equal coverage across the board for FEHB enrollees. And by the way, who are some of those members? This was a group of more than 30 lawmakers, of Democrat lawmakers in the House, led by Tammy Duckworth and Jerry Connolly. All right. Well, it's a start anyway, if for those trying to conceive that are not having luck, uh, better than nothing you might say, for 2024. It's, you know, it's better than it's better than nothing. But, you know, there's still going to be, I think, a push, a bigger push in years to come for this. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. You can find more coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. We'll take a short break. And when we return, a review of a problem that affects thousands of career federal employees at the senior levels, pay compression. You're listening to FedLife on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin.
Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tammen. Pay compression. It's a phenomenon that's been affecting some senior-level federal employees for years now. And now one member of Congress is trying to help adjust pay for those compressed individuals. The new bill comes after months of pressure from senior executive organizations who want the White House to make good on a promise to at least propose a solution to this pay problem. I discussed it with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman, who's been covering this topic extensively. And Drew, again, review for us, if you would, pay compression. Sounds like something that happens to your knee. (laughs) This happens to senior level federal employees, those usually in around GS-15 on the general schedule. So this exists in a couple different pay systems for federal employees, the general schedule, as I said, and then also the senior executive service pay system. And this exists because legally GS pay levels or those of career federal employees can't exceed political appointees who are at level four on the executive schedule. So that's a separate government pay system, but legally they can't exceed those pay rates. And because there's a limit on that, on the pay on the executive schedule, that then affects those in the career service as well. Right. And for years, Congress has steadfastly refused to raise the ceiling on political appointees pay because there's just no political percentage in doing that. Exactly. And so because of that, these GS-15s and a couple GS-14s as well, even though most federal employees do get a raise every year, those employees, once you kind of hit that upper level, once you hit that pay cap, you're not getting a raise anymore. You you kind of max out essentially and your pay gets compressed, so to say. Sure. Yes. You're relative to your experience and your longevity. Got it. So you retire because you get your five high and get out of there. But meanwhile, there is this bill. Who introduced it and what's in it? So this bill comes from Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton from D.C. It's called the... Who can't even vote on it if it comes (laughs) up. (laughs) It does have a couple of co-sponsors as well already, but it's called the Federal Employee Pay Compression Relief Act. And essentially what it would do is make an exception to the pay cap that is impacting these federal employees and give them base and locality pay adjustments to kind of bring them towards what their pay would have been had it had that pay cap not existed. So the idea is, as she said in a press release, to hire and retain federal managers, hire more quality federal leaders for these positions, which often do have a bit of an issue just getting people in the door to SES or or upper levels of the GS system here. In 2022, so last year, Norton did make some initial plans to introduce a similar bill that legislation in 2022 was never never actually filed. So this year we have an actual bill, and I think it's already getting a little bit of praise from some federal groups as well. Right. Does it have any co-sponsors or anything in the Senate even nascent on that front? Nothing yet in the Senate, but it does have a couple of co-sponsors. So Jerry Connolly and Jamie Raskin, for example, two uh, Democrats in the DMV area have co-sponsored the bill as well. But this is a bill that has a lot of Democrat support and no Republican co-sponsors so far. Got it. I mean, the alternative is somehow raising the ceiling on the political pay, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards at all from anybody. Given that that's something that's been going on for several years, I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. So this seems to be an alternative route to at least get the pay up for career federal employees. And, you know, I think it's important to mention as well that 
a lot of this depends. It doesn't affect everyone who is a GS15 or GS14. It really depends on where you live and your step within the GS level as well. For example, this has the greatest impact in the San Francisco area. Also in Washington, D.C. and New York, these kind of high cost of living areas, that's where you're seeing their locality pay adjustments bring them higher up. Then they kind of hit that ceiling more quickly than areas that don't have as high of pay. And when agencies want to bring in someone not at the political level, but at the temporary career level, if you will, for lack of a better word, say they want to bring in someone to be the CIO for a couple of years or the chief data officer, this kind of thing. There they have pay flexibilities that are not available under the people that are on GS, correct? Right. There are some pay flexibilities around this, but it is so, as a lot of senior executive organizations have said, and, and these members of Congress as well, you know, this does impact a good amount of federal employees, both on the GS pay system as well as in the SES. Sure. And the pressure from the Senior Executive Association, I presume, is one of them and other groups. What are they saying besides just, yeah, pay us more? Right. We have the Senior Executives Association, the Professional Managers Association, and just this coalition of senior executive groups, those representing or looking out for uh, senior federal employees. They're saying, you know, this bill is a good step in the right direction. It won't solve the pay compression issue entirely, but it is a step in the right direction. And so they're happy that there's, you know, at least something being done or, or a step being taken here. But they are calling on the Biden administration to make good on a promise that they made earlier this year in the fiscal 2024 budget request, they kind of hinted at this idea of making a proposal for how to address pay compression. And so far, we haven't seen anything from the Office of Management and Budget on that. So they're continuing to await these details from the Biden administration. And just last month, they released a series of letters to OMB, the Office of Personnel Management, and the Labor Department. Those are the agencies that make up the president's pay agent. And they're looking for, you know, more details, a few more answers, I suppose, to and how they're planning to actually fix this issue. And just to get back to Eleanor Holmes Norton's bill, would it allow dollar volumes that are given to someone either through their salary or their locality pay to exceed those ceilings? I mean, because if they can't legally exceed it, can they still exceed it under this bill, I guess is what I'm asking. In other words, if your political is making 200000 and you're at that 197 level or something with locality pay. I'm just making up the numbers. You can't make more than 200 because that's the political ceiling. How will this bill exactly relieve that? The the idea of the bill is to make an exception for the employees who are hit by that pay cap. Got it. So they yeah. exception to the ceiling in other words. Right. So you could be if you were 40 years and and you're a senior executive earn more than your political deputy secretary. Yeah, that's the idea of the legislation. Okay. And so do these organizations say pay compression is a problem because everybody wants more money, or do they feel it affects mission or government in some way? I think it's kind of all of the above, Tom. They're saying, you know, this is something, if you think about it from an outside perspective, okay, these federal employees are in GS-15 levels. They are already making a lot of money. But the argument here is that, you know, you want, first of all, want to be competitive with the private sector and trying to recruit managers and people who are really good managers to the federal government. That becomes a lot harder if you can't really pay them or you tell them you're not going to be getting raises. You're not going to be getting annual raises when those below you do. So that is one of the issues. And then also just, 
you know, trying to retain those employees as well. So keeping them in the door for a longer period of time. These senior executive groups have said that it kind of disincentivizes people from moving into senior level positions because, you know, even if someone is interested in a manager level position, they might not want to take it because that means they're ultimately going to be affected by pay compression. And I think one piece of evidence to support that is the fact that a lot of people retire from the government at that senior level or maybe attorneys where there is a lot of beckoning for higher pay in the private sector. So they're not ready to stop working. They're just ready to stop working for the government for money. Right. So it is possible, I suppose, that you could see people leaving the government going to a different you know, private sector position or some, doing something else rather than staying in there if they're, for one, seeing this kind sure. of issue here. I've yeah. known a few hundred of those <laughs> in the past, you know, in, in, just in the recent years. Okay, so what happens now? That bill has to get some crystallization of support to be brought to the floor, I guess, or to a committee first. There might be a challenge here as, you know, it doesn't have any Republican co-sponsors. As we know, Republicans have the majority in the House. There's also no legislation in the Senate as of yet. So it has a long road ahead of it. But I think there maybe could be some movement on this eventually. We'll we'll just have to see. In the meantime, SEA and other senior executive groups are going to meet with OPM and OMB later this month to discuss that proposal from the Biden administration on pay compression as well. And this postscript, Drew, with me now in studio, this is going to happen shortly. The recommendation will be coming out. And do we know anything about it? Right. If history is any indicator, this we'll see this alternative pay plan from President Biden coming by August 31st. That's tomorrow. And, you know, it's it's not solidified yet, but that would be the next step in the process for federal employees, those not affected by pay compression, to get their pay raise next year. The recommendation back in uh, March from the White House was 5.2%, and that would be the largest pay raise that we've seen for federal employees since 1980 in the Carter administration. So that's a really big, um, it's a really big deal for federal employees coming up. And you know, I think, as I said, if history is any, any indication, that's going to be coming at least by tomorrow. Right. So that would be the standard pay increase for everybody, but that doesn't address the compression issue. Correct. The So the compression issue is, is separate. The 5.2%, of course, would only apply to employees who don't hit that uh, that pay cap, that pay ceiling that we see from and senior executives um, and their positions a lot. But anyone else below that, at least on the general schedule, would see 5.2% pay raise in 2023. But there are a few steps in the process to make that official. So the alternative pay plan, which again, we'll likely see by tomorrow, um, once that comes through, as long as Congress doesn't do anything to um, issue an alternative pay raise, then then it would be made official by December, most likely. All right. So Congress is unlikely to do that, to alter it in some way, because they've got too much on their plate. And generally, they go along with what the president recommends. Generally, yes. There have been cases where they will have uh, some sort of alternative to what the president recommends. But in this case, so far, in both the House and Senate appropriations bills, we haven't seen any indication that they're going to stray from that 5.2 percent number. So that likely means that we'll see that number come through for 2024. All right. So nobody's getting rich, but maybe a little bit more in the paycheck than coming. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll return next week with more of what you need to know for managing your federal career and financial life. Until then, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.